poor fella. Hear me, Lord. Listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. Have you ever prayed that prayer or prayed a prayer like it? I'm guessing that you have, maybe not with those exact words, but with the same intent. You have prayed asking God to hear you, to listen, to answer you, to just sometimes pay attention. If you've prayed like that, I, I suspect you're in good company. I know you're at least in league with David, the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. Psalm 17 is the first psalm in the Psalter that is designated as a prayer. Psalm 17, the heading will say, a prayer of David, because that's what it is. It's a model prayer. It teaches us. It instructs us. We're privileged, really, to get a glimpse into the prayer life of God's servant, David. David, we read, is a man after God's own heart. And in large part, it's because David is a man of prayer. The psalm begins with David addressing the Lord, Psalm 17 does. We, we don't know the situation yet, but we can observe from the get-go David's stance before God. He says in verse 1, he prays, Hear me, Lord, my plea is just. Listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. What we see from the outset of the psalm is a man engaging with God. A man who knows that he can turn to God and bear his soul before God. In this way, as we approach this psalm, David teaches us a few things about prayer. He teaches first of all, to cry out to God. Cry out to God. Like a child who runs to mom or dad when something is wrong, tears in their eyes and a choke in their throat, David runs to his heavenly father. Hear me. Listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. He believes that God hears him. David understands that he gets to speak with the God who hears. This is one of the most incredible miracles. And yet it's often downplayed or completely overlooked. We take this immense privilege and we write it off as just another spiritual task. Another box to check on a checklist of religious duties. Guess I better pray today. Haven't prayed yet. Now, I I must admit, prayer is not always my first reaction. I don't always pray first about what's going on. I don't. Just this week, I was having a hard parenting moment. And what did I do? Well, Megan and I talked about it a lot. Uh, We sat the kids down and even had a family meeting. And then I called Carla and vented to Carla. You know what I didn't do? I didn't cry out to God in prayer. I, I didn't think initially to pray about it. Now, I, I'm beyond thankful for my wife for the discussions that we can have and the agreement that we come to. And I'm glad I can call Carla anytime. She'll listen. She'll advise. A lot of times she'll correct me, tell me I'm being a dummy, and she's most of the time right. But why? Why wasn't prayer my first move? Why wasn't prayer my first step? I always get around to prayer eventually, but it's not always my go-to. By the way, Carla's cell phone number is 660-555. Call her anytime. I put the 555 in there so you'd know it was fake. 
don't call Carla anytime, really, unless she tells you to. It makes me feel a little better about prayerlessness, and maybe it'll make you feel a little better about your prayerlessness if you understand that prayer was not always David's first move either. Instead of praying when he was tempted by that pretty lady on the roof, David gave in. And then instead of praying and confessing after his affair with that pretty lady who was bathing on the roof, he tried to cover it up, tried to take matters into his own hands, and even killed her husband. Prayer, at any point or at multiple points in this saga, would have redirected David's beliefs and his actions, his feelings. I'm sure it would have. David's inclination, not even David's inclination, is always to pray first. And we know that this, we know that prayer is not the natural first step for God's people at all times. I know it's not for me, and I'm assuming it's not what you do first all the time, is it? Let's be honest. No, not all the time. After 400-ish years in slavery, after 400, catch that, 400 and some odd years in slavery, God's people... After 400, I want you to catch the, this will make you feel better about yourself. You've not waited 400 years to cry out to God. The people in Israel did. After 400 years in slavery, God's people finally cry out to God for help, for relief, for redemption. We're told in in Exodus chapter 2, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery after 400 stinking years, and they cried out. And their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. The Israelites finally come to their senses and finally come to the end of their collective rope and finally do what they should have done long before. They cry out to God, and guess what? God hears. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Further on in the history of God's people, as recorded in the book of Judges, probably my favorite book that I've ever preached through, by the way, in case you were wondering, there's a consistent refrain. It just happened. It's a, it's a cycle in Judges. Judges 3.9, but when they, the people of God, cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer who delivered them, Othniel, son of Kenaz. And then in verse 15, like six verses later, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. He gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man. That may be my favorite story. Go ahead and read Ehud, the left-handed man. Uh, in Judges chapter 4, they're, they're oppressed, the people of God, because the one oppressing them had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. And then they cried out to the Lord for help. Judges chapter 6, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, you see this cycle? On every page of Judges, it's, it's the same thing over and over again. In, in the time of the Judges, <clears throat> the people of God keep doing whatever feels good to them, which is always a bad idea. Don't do what feels good to you. Do what the Lord tells you to do. The people keep doing whatever they please, and it routinely gets them into a jam. And eventually, eventually, they'll cry out to God. And what does God do? He hears their cry. And he gives them a deliverer, a judge, to deliver them every single time. Every single time. It's mercy upon mercy. It's grace upon grace. Why do we wait so long to cry out to him? 
It's not just us, it's God's people throughout the ages. Why do we wait so long to cry out to him? Why is this a pattern among the people of God? Why don't we learn to make this, crying out to God, our first move, our knee-jerk reaction, our first response? I don't know what it is you might be facing, but I'm certain that you're up against something. I, I just know it. Family struggles, drama with a friend, health concerns, financial worries. Maybe the enemy is after you, tempting you, deceiving you, discouraging you, feeding you lies. Life, life is hard. Life sometimes kind of stinks. David is here, Psalm 17, as in every page of the Psalms, facing something His mortal enemies, we'll read in verse 9, have surrounded him. It's not a good situation. And so he cries out to the Lord in prayer. I don't know how long it took David to get there, to cry out to God, but I can just see, can't you just see David dropping to his knees, even falling face down in prayer before the Lord Almighty? And then he pleads his case. Verses 3 through 5. He says, Though you probe my heart, though you examine me at night and test me, you'll find that I have planned no evil. My mouth has not transgressed. Though people try to bribe me, I've kept myself from the ways of the violent through what your lips have commanded. My steps have held to your paths. My feet have not stumbled. In this instance, again, hear me, in this instance, David has not messed up. He's innocent here. Now, he's not perfectly innocent of all wrongdoing, merely innocent of what his enemies are charging him with here. David's plea in verse 1, he says, is just. He's not being deceitful, verse 2. David is in the right. He's keeping himself on the straight and narrow. There are times, maybe even often, when you can honestly say, I have done nothing wrong. I've done nothing wrong here. So why is this happening? What is going on? Rather than getting angry with God, David pleads his case. He presents his arguments. In this instance, David's life is not a barrier to the Lord's hearing, something that the psalmist alludes to in Psalm 66. The psalmist says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. This should lead us to a very candid self-examination. As we pray, we should cry out to the Lord, but also ask, am I being disobedient to the Lord? Am I being selfish? Is there a wrong that I need to be working to make right? Have I offended my brother or my sister? Are my priorities in order? Or am I just crying out to God because I want something like a petulant little child? We can always cry out to the Lord, but... Like David, when we're able to cry out and argue our case with integrity and without deceit, we can expect to meet the God who hears. David continues praying, continues crying out to God, all the while teaching us to pray and why to pray. Look at verses 6 through 9. David continues praying, I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. Show me the wonders of your great love, you who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who are out to destroy me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. 
Why do we pray? Why should we pray? David tells us to cry out to God because he loves you. Cry out to God because he loves you. Okay, Uh, we're not going to get all sentimental here, uh, all gushy and cutesy, lovey-dovey. Hear me. It is not enough to say that God loves you. It's not. It sounds nice. God loves you. It it sounds nice. It's It's a very sweet thought. But if God loves you in the same way that you love cheesecake or in the way that you love your junior high boyfriend, you don't have very much. It's not enough to say that God loves you because the English language has taken the word love and ruined it. doesn't mean anything. We need to try to express what David's getting at here in verse 7. Verse 7, you see, is the heart of the psalm. Look at what David prays in verse 7. He says, show me the wonders of your great love, you who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from their foes. Show me your great love, the wonders of your great love. Great love is not a bad translation. Neither is loving kindness or uh, whatever your Bible might have to say. But it's not enough. It doesn't quite get there. This word great love is our favorite Hebrew word, right down here, right under the beard, deep under the beard, (coughs) hesed, right? It's the the guttural response, hesed. That's what it is. Great love is the word hesed. That is, this is the covenant love of God, the loving kindness of God, the faithful love of God. So to express what David's getting at here, we need to say something like this. Cry out to God because he loves you steadfastly. Because he loves you steadfastly. If God only loves you as much as you love going to the movies, there's nothing to write home about, and there's certainly nothing to stake your life upon. God loves you steadfastly. God loves you with a covenant love, a love that's based not on feeling, but on his promise. Ain't no love like God's love, because God's love don't stop. Cry out to God because he loves you steadfastly. David has absolutely no doubt. Don't you see in this prayer? He has absolutely no doubt that God will answer him. None. And so David asks for God to show off his great Hesed covenant love. Show me, says David, almost like he's a good Missourian. Show me. So confident is David in God's steadfast love that David can be calm, even prayerful in the face of danger. David knows in God's love, there's salvation, and there's refuge, there's protection, and there's shelter for God's people. Indeed, God keeps his people, the picture we have here is is God keeping his people as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Hide me in the shelter of your wings. They're safe under the shelter of God's wings. God keeps his people And he protects them as the apple of his eye. The pupil. Poetic language, apple of your eye, means the pupil. Probably the most sensitive. Don't you do anything to protect the pupil? Uh, It's even impossible, really, to keep your eyes open for eye drops or that dilating fluid that the doctor tries to squeeze in there. Reflexively, you, you close your eyes or you turn your head to prevent anything from happening to your eyes. 
This is something even the three stooges understood, right? I mean, you put your hand right here to prevent the, the eye poke. Reflexively. What, what this means, protect me as the apple of your eye, is that God is going to do everything to protect you. Because you're his children. You're his treasure. You're his most prized possession, the apple of his eye. God's hesed, his, his great love, his faithful and steadfast love, is certain. David anchors himself to this great truth, to the great truth of God's great and steadfast love. He has docked his ship right there next to God's hesed. You see, David knows that God has kept his promise, his covenant in the past. And so God can be expected to keep his covenant now can be expected to do the same for all his people, for David, for you. God has kept his covenant and will keep on expressing his covenant love over and over and over. Hesed, hesed, hesed. It's who he is. It's not because you deserve it. Get that out of your mind. God doesn't love you with hesed love because you have done a fine job. Wrong. No. God loves you because it's who he is. It's part of him. It's his nature. And for his people who belong to him by faith in his son, there is no chance that he ever, ever, ever gives up. The steadfast love of God has never been illustrated any more clearly than it was one Friday 2,000 years ago, where Jesus, the God-man, the only son of God, perfect and spotless sacrificial lamb, carried his cross and our sins upon his tattered, torn, and beaten where Jesus gave up his life of his own accord because he loved us. Not flippantly, not carelessly, not half-heartedly, not in an I love pizza kind of love, but loved us completely and while we were yet hostile to him. He loved us so. He loved his enemies, those who would be given grace to believe. He loved them, loved us with a steadfast, unending, never giving up kind of love. And it's this, it's this, it's this, the steadfast love of God. This is the reason that we can cry out to him. Cry out to him. Bear your soul to him. Not out of religious obligation, but because no one loves you like he loves you. No one but one loves you perfectly. Your parents are going to mess up. Your spouse going to mess up. Your grandparents... As awesome as they are, they're going to disappoint. Friends, no. No one but one loves you perfectly. The steadfast love of God, no one, nothing, not even you, can change or stop that. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is Jesus our Lord. God loves you steadfastly. Steadfastly. This is true. It was true for David and Christian. It's true. Wondrously, gloriously, marvelously, incomprehensibly true for you. God loves you steadfastly. David's prayer continues. They close up their callous hearts. And their mouths speak with arrogance. 
They have tracked me down. They now surround me. With eyes alert to throw me to the ground, they are like a lion hungry for prey, like a fierce lion crouching in cover. Catch the description of his enemies. Talk about some bad mamma These people do not care for David even a little. The problem is urgent. There's no time for delay. He is surrounded. They are closing in. They are out to destroy him. The situation is dark, and it's time-sensitive. And it seems like an awful lot, especially when we read what David says next. This is what he prays. Rise up, Lord, confront them, bring them down. With your sword, rescue me from the wicked. By your hand, save me from such people, Lord, from those of this world whose reward is in this life. May what you have stored up for the wicked fill their bellies. May their children gorge themselves on it. May there be leftovers for their little ones. David's prayer teaches us to cry out to God because he loves you steadfastly and will fight for you always. I don't have enemies like David does. I'm not persecuted. I don't know what it is to be in trouble like David. I certainly know what it is to be in trouble. Just this morning I got in trouble for, I I, I don't want to talk about it. still a little fresh. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Tishy yelled at me because the coffee wasn't ready. Like, hey. She didn't yell at me, but she was just messing. I don't know what it is to be in trouble. I have lived, and, and most of you, a really probably cushy life. I know nothing of the kind of threat that David faces here. But if we're able to imagine what David's up against, we would be shocked. Think about it. He has all his enemies surrounding him, closing in on him. They want to kill him. They want to destroy him. If we knew, if we could put ourselves in David's sandals and know what he's talking about, what he's facing, we would be shocked to know that David isn't going to take matters into his own hands. We'd say, put him up. Get ready. Go get him. You have to fight him. Stand up for yourself. David does not exercise vengeance himself. He waits for vindication. David knows what's written in the law of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, the Lord says, It is mine to avenge. I will repay. And then Paul quotes this in Romans, so we know that it's for us. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath as it is written. It is mine to avenge. I, says the Lord, I will repay. In other words, not you. David doesn't do the fighting. He trusts God to fight for him. And what a prayer. The first line of verse 13, my family loves this. We read this together last night. Rise up, Lord, confront them, bring them down, curb stomp them. Okay, okay. I I added the last part of that, but I I get caught up in it. I love what, what David prays. He's surrounded, they're closing in, and David doesn't back off. He doesn't want his enemies to succeed. He doesn't say, oh, you know, it's fine, Lord, let them kill me, it's, it's good. Rather, David is tagging out. And expecting the Lord Almighty to step into the ring and bring his enemies down. David trusts that God has something in store for the wicked, for his enemies. Enough for them, enough for their children, even enough for the little ones. May they gorge themselves on it. 
David knows that his enemies, he says, have their reward in this life. They have it. Those who, how does he put it? From those of this world whose reward is in this life. And to have everything but God is judgment enough. David knows. What's more, God will judge the wicked. He will judge the enemies of his people. God will punish them. God in God alone. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He alone has the right to do it. You, you do not get to take vengeance. But you can trust that God will fight for you. We need to trust along with David that we can place our deepest hurts, even our ugliest petitions, bring them down, God. Our truest thoughts before the Lord and knows and, and know that he will take care of it in the way that he sees fit. We can trust, we need to trust that God has got it handled. But letting God handle things, <laughs> letting God things is tough. Anyone with me? Are you just super good at letting God handle everything? There have been many times I'd like to give it a go. I would. I'd like to fight my own battles. There's been a handful of times I'd like to deck someone or take them, curb stomp them. I've always wanted to curb stomp someone. I think I'd like to dole out judgment as I see fit. That I'd like to be the one executing punishment. I, I, sometimes I think, yeah, let me in. Tag me in, God. You step out for a while and say, vengeance is Barrett's. But that would be good for no one, and least of all me. We ought to pray like David, entrusting all of what we have to God. Trusting our lot to him, trusting him to take care of us and to take care of the situation, whatever the situation might be. If God didn't fight for us, we all would have succumbed long ago, wouldn't we? Our enemy Satan, we're told, prowls about like a lion looking for someone to devour. But the Lord, in his steadfast love, protects us, shelters us, hides us under his wings, and he fights our battles for us. Always. Not just some of the time. Well, God, you take this one, I'll take that one. No, God will fight for you always. The Lord will fight for David, and David knows it. That's what, that's what the end of Psalm 17 expresses. The Lord is going to fight for me, says David, and I, I know it. And he says, I'll be vindicated in the end, if nothing else. And David knows this, and he's satisfied. Look at the last verse. There's some, some peace and some confidence here. David says, well, as for me, can't you just kind of hear him? Just with a sigh and a shrug of his shoulders, and maybe, maybe he leans back in his lazy boy. As for me, I'll be vindicated, and I will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. David's joy, his Life, his hope, his expectation is in the Lord, in being with him and seeing him face to face as one friend sees another. What a beautiful end to a beautiful prayer. Lord, I trust you. And as for me, I'm good. I'll be vindicated. I'll be just fine. 
Now, what we do with this psalm, it's pretty easy. It's clear. It's, it's right here for us. The application is right here. We do what David tells us to do. We cry out to the Lord because he loves his people steadfastly, and he will fight for us always. Crying out to God is just good common sense. As his children, our Father wants us to turn to him in times of need. And we know he loves us unlike anyone else loves us. And he, the Lord Almighty, fights for us. Always has, always will. We need only to be still. Why would we turn to anyone else for anything else? The Lord is the one who hears, the one who answers, the one who helps, the one who vindicates his people. Friends, cry out to God because he loves you steadfastly and he will fight for you always. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are that we have such a God. Someone we can turn to, we can cry out to. And as your people, you hear us. You answer us. You listen to our cry. What an amazing privilege. Help us not to neglect this or to write it off as, oh yeah, okay, another, another text about prayer. But would we see this great privilege that we have of coming before your throne and pleading for grace and mercy in our times of need? Father, would we understand your deep love, your steadfast covenant, always and forever love for us? We love you and we trust you and we entrust our very being to you, knowing that you will care for us and protect us, fight for us. You are such a good God, and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing our closing song, Are You Washed? That is not what we have. Sorry, can you, can you turn to hymn 330?